Lord, we ask that your spirit will make your word become life in our minds and our hearts once again today. We open our hearts to receiving and seeing wonderful, powerful, life-transforming truth from your word. In the name of your word, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the last year or so, our house has passed its 20-year milestone. Many of us know exactly what that means. There are any number of things, little things and big things that are nearing the end of their shelf life. They need to be replaced, renovated, restored in some way, right? I enjoy doing stuff, and I especially enjoy it when I can justify buying a new tool so I can do stuff. But what I'm discovering about myself is that I am also passing a certain milestone in years, and that I am less and less willing to take on things that I think might have any level of complexity to them. I took on stuff when I was younger that, I, that I'd never take on now. It's, it's partly, I think, because the more of life you have under your belt, the more you realize all the things that can go wrong. And in many cases, my wife would say, thank you, Jesus. There's a huge sign of maturity in her mind. And yes, she has some stories to prove it. But there is a downside. Sometimes things just become so big in our minds And we freeze, we don't know what to do, we postpone it, we justify not doing it. Just recently there was a situation in our house I knew had to be addressed. I knew that if I hired someone to do it, it would cost more than I wanted to pay. But if I tried to do it myself, we might be without water for who knows how long and I would still have to hire somebody to do it. Finally came to the point I had no choice. We were turning off the water for good chunks of the day. So I took it on. The fix was so simple, so quick, five minutes, so basic. I thought, why did I spend all that time worrying and fretting? It was not as complex as I had worried it would be. Isn't that life? The more we get into it, the more we tend to see how complex it can be. Sometimes that works for us and we realize we need to plan better. We have less simplistic answers to some things. Be a little more humble. In some ways that is a sign of maturing. But sometimes it works against us. We forget. We lose sight of the fact that at the core there are some things that although they're not easy, they are simple. And as any engineer will tell you, many of those things are profound in their simplicity. That's where we're going to go today in our more Jesus journey through the gospel, the the good news according to Mark. Turn to the book called Mark in the Bible. It's, It's the second book in the New Testament section of your Bible. If you don't have one, just download a Bible app really quickly and and look look up Mark in the index and and turn to chapter 4. As we turn there, uh, let's think about that prayer that we just prayed. May your word become life in us. Do you realize that's, that's the number one thing that most of us struggle with? Or find ways to avoid struggling with? And, and we make it more complex in our mind than it really is. 
Last week, we looked in a, in a somewhat heady theoretical kind of way uh, at, at the core engagement of the universe. It's found in that first recorded in, in, in teaching by Jesus in Mark's gospel at the beginning of chapter 4, a central parable, a very uh, earthy parable, literally, parable about dirt. It's the only parable Jesus takes time to explain and apply. He, he makes, wants to make sure we get it and get it right. At the heart of it all, there's a sower who is God. There's a seed which is, according to Jesus, his word. And there's soil, dirt, my heart. In this parable, it's not that my heart is dirty. It's dirt, it's soil. The question is not how bad my heart is. The question is how fertile my heart is. Is it closed or is it open to God's word, his life transforming truth? Is it closed or is it open? To Jesus, the enfleshed word of God. To who Jesus really is. To what Jesus did. And to what that means for everything. Is it a stubborn heart like the religious leaders of the day were showing? Is it a shallow or easily distracted heart like the crowd in, 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 the, in the story of Jesus? Or is it an engaged heart? A heart engaged with God's word and with Jesus. A heart, a heart that leads to a life that, well, as the parable said, all of us really want to be known for. A productive life. Amazingly productive. Mega times more productive. 30, 60, 100 fold. When normal was about 7 to 10 fold. A life that will cause people to say, it's amazing. How does she do that? And that is the question. How do I do that? How can word really become life in and through my heart? We all struggle with that in different ways. But as the organizational psychologist Kurt Lewin so famously said, there is nothing as practical as a good theory. And that's precisely where Mark takes us today because that's exactly where Jesus takes his disciples into real life, into really real life, into an opportunity to test whether the word that has come to their heart is becoming life in real life. You know how we know that what, that's what's happening? Because our, our teaching section today begins at Mark chapter 4, verse 35, the, the end of the chapter, and the first phrase in that section tells us that this is going to be a test. That this is a transition from the teaching to real life. Is it going to work? Because it says, on that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across the lake. On that day? On what day? On the same day that Jesus had taught them. In parables, this core teaching, this theory about God, his word, and my heart being the central engagement of life. They've been to church. They've heard the teaching. And the disciples are saying, wow, this guy, this guy has, seems to have such authority. This just sounds so right. 
and, and it's not as onerous or as complicated at all as all of those religious leaders are making it. And people seem to be getting it. Some of them might be saying, you know, great theory. But how does that look like in real life? Well, they're not saying it out loud. But remember, Jesus knows, chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus knows what the people are thinking. And he takes his disciples into a situation that will help them see, translate into real life, this core engagement. God, his word, and my heart. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across the lake. Across the lake with fishermen, which is what this core, the, the executive core of the 12 were, with fishermen, you can't get any more real life than a lake, than this lake. This lake, the Sea of Galilee, was their real life. It was the place where they were experts about real life. But the sea in the biblical story, the big story, is more than real life. More than their real life. In the Bible, in the, in the word of God that they knew, the Old Testament, the sea was a symbol. The sea was a symbol of chaos, of uncontrollable, unpredictable life. The sea is something that only God can control. So, after leaving the crowd, they took him along, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. Just as he was, that's another single signal that this is a continuation. There's no break. They went straight from church right to the lake into this real-life test. By the way, who are these other boats that were with him? Well, as we've seen in the story now, there's beginning to be several levels of relationship with Jesus. He's called together his core, the 12, and around that core were simply what has been called others. People who were sincere about following Jesus, listening to him and obeying him, and then the outside circle is the crowd who were interested in, and then outside of that were these teachers of the law that are conspiring against Jesus. So the others were that circle around the 12 that are wanting to follow Jesus sincerely. This will be a lesson, not just for the 12, but for all of Jesus' followers. Now, what they're doing here, it's not really new in some way. It's becoming a pattern, right? Chapter 3, Jesus takes them away from the crowds for a little retreat on the mountain. And it was powerful. He appointed the 12 and his core, and then he came back and demonstrated his power over the evil one. I am the strong man. Chapter 3. And then hearing Jesus say to everyone, these, these guys are my family. So what they're hearing when Jesus says, let's go across the lake, is these guys are hearing... Well, guys, it's been a busy day. Let's take another mini retreat. 
and they're liking it. Now, if you know the story, you might catch a bit of irony in how Mark has framed this here. Jesus invites them to go across the lake. But who is taking whom? This is their turf. These are their boats. So they are taking Jesus with them. They really do have the situation in hand. Or do they? Now, a great windstorm developed. In the NIV, it says, furious squall developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. That word, great windstorm, furious squall, that, that's actually a word that, that is also used for a hurricane. So in this real-life journey, they have suddenly gone from normal real life to way beyond normal real life. Now, that is real life, isn't it? it? It just happens. Here they are in a raging sea in a boat that was not built to handle these situations. Back in 1986, uh, along the shores of Sea of Galilee, uh, they, they dug up a, a remnant of a boat from this era, from, from the first century B.C. or A.D., about that age, Probably exactly like the boat the disciples and Jesus were in. This boat's 27 feet long. So for us here, it's from about the edge of the stage over there to the backside of the organ. In Renew over there, it's just shorter than the width of your back wall where the screens are, that, that uh, wood wall. It's about five feet shorter than that. 27 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, and about four feet deep. This is not a big boat. This is not a boat that's built for this storm. This is the original tub. Capacity, maximum 15 people. There's 13 of them in the boat. Now a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. Remember that first phrase, when evening came? That phrase not only puts this story in continuity with the previous events of the day, it's a significant little detail for another reason. This lake that we know of is the Sea of Galilee. Just a bit of a geography lesson to know what that means. The Sea of Galilee, the surface of the Sea of Galilee is actually 200 meters below sea level. It's in this basin, surrounded by hills and mountains that are way above sea level, just 50 kilometers to the northeast, is Mount Hermon, which is actually 2,800 meters above sea level. So in the space of 50 kilometers, you have an elevation change of 3,000 meters. And everyone, especially fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, knew that when evening came, there was a chance, and at certain times of the year, a high chance that the interchange between the, the cold air from the height of Mount Hermon and the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee produced conditions on the lake that nobody wanted to be in. This lake was famous for terrible conditions when evening came. So why are they out there? 
Well, obviously, Jesus doesn't know about that, right? They were there because Jesus had taken them there. They were beginning to trust him, let their guard down and risk a bit more. They had just said yes to Jesus' call to follow him. So how can they say no to him now, even though it might be against their better judgment to cross the sea when evening came? They know what Jesus says about people who say no to him, who don't trust him. They've seen the amazing thing that can happen when people trust him. And, and, and in their hearts, they want to trust him. And so probably against their better judgment, they take Jesus across the lake. And now look where that's got them. To visualize this next peak, let's take a look at a, at a reconstructed model of this boat. This boat had a, had a deck both fore and aft, one in the bow, one at the stern, which was a great working surface when they were fishing, great surface to sit or even lay down on when they're resting, and it was a key part of the structure to keep this boat stable. When the wind got to storm status, the sails would have been taken down and four guys would have been rowing, well, trying to row when the waves weren't throwing them off balance. And the other eight guys were bailing, probably bailing with one hand, hanging on to whatever they could with the other hand, giving it all they have, and they finally have to admit they've lost the battle. The water is coming overboard faster than they can bail. They're getting nowhere, and the storm is showing no signs of slowing down. And all the while, on that deck, or actually probably under the deck, on a pillow, Jesus is sleeping. He's not even praying. He's sleeping. And they finally had enough. How do you think? How long do you think? And what do you think their minds were doing as they'd been frantically working and in their minds frustratedly stewing? So finally, they wake Jesus up and take Jesus on. Teacher, don't you even care that we are about to die? We've given everything to follow you, and you were the one who took us into this situation. And you don't even give a rip about us. We trusted you, but we should have known better. Jesus, you don't get real life. Oh my, <laughs> have we been there? Is this not real life for us and Jesus? Jesus didn't seem to come through for me in this situation. So I'm backing off. Can't be real. And the situations, the real life situations we have are almost as big, certainly in our minds, they are as big as this big storm. I gave my all to a track I believed you were leading me on, spent three years trying to get into this program, and you didn't care enough to make it happen. I thought I was listening to you. You took my mother away at a crucial time in my life. You abandoned me and allowed all kinds of things to happen. Everyone else has an easy road. Look at my life. And some of us, because of those experiences, have, have not 
totally, formally given up on following Jesus, but our line is this. God, when you do this, when you come through for me in this way, I'll come back to a, that whatever, whenever, wherever, however costly commitment that, that I made to you. God has to do something before we will take one more step with him and we begin to live separate lives. Our faith life over here, real life over here, and they don't come together. Now when the disciples say, don't you even care, what is it that they're expecting Jesus to have done? Are they expecting that that he should have calmed the sea? Do, do they even think he can calm the sea? We don't know. Or are they just expecting that at least he could have been caring enough to be in there with them trying? Probably more likely. Or do they just want him to care enough to say to them, you guys, I know I got you into this situation. I'm so sorry. I should have consulted you to see if you thought it was safe. I realize this is my fault. We don't, we don't know what it is they're looking for when we say you don't care. But we do know what it is to want God to apologize. Don't we? They've forsaken all to follow Jesus. Should he not, in this moment of difficulty, be paying attention to them, their needs, their feelings? And so Jesus wakes up, and he gets up, and at least the way Mark tells the story, he doesn't even seem to respond to their question. He doesn't even speak to them. He stands up and speaks to the wind. Look at it closely. He rebuked the wind. He reprimanded it. He condemned the wind. It's the same word that Mark has already used twice in this book at how Jesus spoke to evil spirits. For the disciples, for some of them, it's like, wow, it's about time. Why didn't he do that early? Why did he have to wait until we woke him up and told him what to do? Some of the disciples or some of the others in the boats around might have been a bit skeptical and said, okay, cool. Cool coincidence. How did he know the wind was about to calm down? Maybe he just got lucky, right? Whatever, at least we're finally safe. But then Jesus does one more thing. He got up. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, muzzle yourself. That's what it is. Calm down. Be quiet. The wind stopped, and the sea immediately, dead calm. And in those boats, it was also dead calm heart-stoppingly calm. You see, the stopping of the wind could be explained away. They weren't scientists or meteorologists, but they knew that waves don't just stop. It takes a time, a long time, for waves to calm down. 
even after the wind stops. And then, then, Jesus turns to them and finally speaks to them. And what does he say? He doesn't answer their question. Don't you care? As a matter of fact, from what he says, he might or we might feel justified in thinking that he confirms what was behind their question. What he says seems so uncaring. They had asked him, don't you even care? He says nothing to them, just speaks to the wave, and then he turns and finally speaks to them. Why are you such cowards? That's what that word means. It's it's a different word than the normal word for fear. It's the word cowardly. Why are you such cowards? Do you still have no faith? Cowards? That was the ultimate slam against some rugged, manly, fully aware of the situation fishermen. It's like, are you kidding me? You still don't get what just happened, do you? That's what they're thinking about Jesus. We're going to come back to that word cowardly in a minute. But first, let's just put out there what it is that we would like Jesus to be saying to them because it's what we really want to think Jesus would say to us in a situation like this. What do we want Jesus to say? We want him to say, I'm so sorry, guys. I really did not mean to cause you to panic. Right? We want a voice of sympathy saying, you know what? I I understand your fear, but it's okay. But he doesn't. As a matter of fact, what he says is almost the opposite. Not I understand. It's more like when will you guys understand? What kind of Jesus is that? The passage ends with this statement. And now it uses the real word for fear. They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another. The question they should have asked been asking themselves all along. Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. You see, when they see the waves stop instantly and hear Jesus say, what's with you guys? Why are so cowardly? A whole bunch of pennies begin to drop in their mind. Oh my goodness, we thought we were taking him into this storm. He knew what was happening all along. And the next penny, oh my, if he could just stop the wind and the waves with the word, did he actually start? that storm with his word? And hence the question, who is this? This is not just a man with God-like power. Is this God? The God who spoke everything into beginning at creation. Is this the God who in the beginning made the original waters of chaos into order? 
and then the last penny. If he has that kind of control over everything he's created, he has absolute control over me. Now that's a thought that inspires fear. You see, in the presence of that God, fear of a whole different level is the only logical response. It's an eye-popping, heart-stopping, mind-bending, oh my goodness, that shapes my interpretation of and my response to everything in life. Now let's go back and see how this whole scene comes about again. Jesus is taking them into the storm to teach them a lesson. What lesson? How can word become life in my heart and my real life? How does the story answer that question? Well, it's in Jesus' two questions that we see two answers to that question. In his question, why are you so cowardly? It exposes our normal rut. How we prevent it, actually, in the way we think and respond. How we prevent it from working in real life. And the second question, do you still have no faith, points to a simple, not complex, not complex, but simple. Not easy, but simple choice that I can make to make it work. So, how do we prevent it from coming to life in our life? Well, let's take a look at that word cowardly. Jesus uses the word cowardly because he's not just talking about a, 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 an instant emotional reaction, fearful. He's not accusing the disciples of having a legitimate instinctual fear response to the storm. The, the kind of fear that when you see a car coming at you causes you to instantly, without thinking, swerve to avoid it. That's, that's normal. That's positive. He's not saying we will never have nor ever should have a, a, a panicky feeling when somebody spooks us in the dark. After 40 years, my wife still hates it when I do that. That's okay. Jesus is talking about how storms in life become storms in our heart. Cowardly is the word that is talking not just about fear, but being fear-driven. These guys had plenty of time to think as the storm is developing, as the water is coming into the boat and they're frantically bailing. They have lots of time to think. And where does their cowardly thinking lead them? This guy doesn't care about me. One reason this God and his word in my life does not make become real is because we see God's word as a bunch of, well, maybe a bunch of rules that God demands us to keep, and we think we can't keep and do, and it still doesn't work out, or we think we can't keep, and so because he's a God of love and cares for us, well, it's okay, I, I understand, and we call that grace. That's not grace. Or, or we see God's word in terms of promises that he is supposed to keep for us, and, and we interpret those promises in a very me-centered way. And when we don't see him making life smooth for us in the way that we think a caring God would, we do all kinds of things to either reinterpret life or deny what's really happening in our hearts or in our lives or, or we give up on God. Let's put on the table something else about this word coward. Some of us have been sucked into thinking that to be a person of faith is to be a coward, right? 
I don't need faith. I'm a man. I can handle it. Right. And we're making life hell for everyone around us because our anger, our demands, our controlling behavior, our irritability. And everyone's afraid to say us, man, you just don't have the guts to admit that you need Jesus. I don't need faith. I have scientific explanations. Right. And, and, and your scientific explanations have made life so small, such a small box, and you have, you have more faith than a person who claims faith. You're more afraid of what your little scientist club are going to say to you if you explore the real questions of your heart than you want to admit. We say only cowards need faith. Jesus said it's cowards that are afraid of faith. We're back to that question we asked last week. What are you afraid of? How is cowardice controlling your life, blocking God's word from becoming life in your heart? The question we throw out is, how can you expect me to do that? The question that's coming back from God is, what's keeping you from doing it? What is it that's keeping you from doing it? So what is it? Okay, that, that exposes a key problem, but, but what's the solution? Well, let's look at Jesus' second question. Do you still not have faith? Here's where we get to that simple, basic solution that it doesn't take a tradesman, it doesn't take a professional Christian to live out. Let's come back now to our triangle. God, his word, my heart. Did these disciples have a word from God that they needed to allow to be real in the soil of their heart in this storm? As the storm was getting stronger, as the water is starting to come into the boat, as the amount of water that's coming into the boat was more than the water they could heave out of the boat, what word of God should, they have, should have been planted in the soil of their heart and taken fruit that would have made them say, wow, this is an opportunity for me to believe that. Can you think of any? How about that basic central core story of God's people, the Exodus? They're powerful for deliverance of God from the Pharaoh of Egypt. How did that start? Wasn't there something about a sea and a wind that parted the sea and as they were about to be crushed by Pharaoh's army and God led them through the waters? Were there not Psalms that they had committed to memory and said in their Sunday worship that talked about this very situation. Psalm 46 comes to my mind. God is our strong refuge and always there help in trouble. And because of that, we do not fear when the earth shakes and the mountains tumble into the sea and its waves rise up and crash, and foam, and roar, and the surging sea smashes back at the mountains that are still standing, there is another water, a river, a life-giving river that brings joy to the city of God, the special holy dwelling place of the one who was sovereign over all. God lives within it. It cannot be moved. God rescues it at break of dawn. So stop your flapping and know that I am God. I will be exalted over all the earth. 
And what was the word of God from Jesus? The good news that they have come to believe and they've heard now how many times? In Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. That's what Jesus said was the good news. In, in Luke chapter 17, he puts, puts it this way. The kingdom of God in me, the kingdom of God is, is among you. So here's the deal. When Jesus calmed the storm, what was it so they were supposed to see they had not learned? When Jesus says, do you still not have faith? What is what he's saying that they didn't get? Is he saying, you should have believed that I could calm the storm when it was time? Is that what he's saying? No, his point is actually way bigger than that. Can you not see who it is that's with you in the boat? If you really knew who it is that is in the boat with you, your fear would not have become cowardness. It would not have controlled you. Jesus, the creator of the sea, the controller of the chaos, is in the boat. Here's what faith is. Faith is simply seeing and living as if Jesus is in the boat. It is saying to my heart, be still, heart. Jesus is in the boat, and he's not going to drown himself. I am in Christ, as Paul says. There's nothing that can truly touch me, not even this storm. To put it another way, the storm is the safest place to be when Jesus is in the boat because Jesus is in the boat, I don't have to react. I don't have to panic. I don't have to live an uptight life even when I feel like I'm sinking because he's not going to allow himself to drown. If I really let it sink into my heart that Jesus is in the boat, I don't have to, I don't have to be so demanding that God and everyone else around me will make something happen for me because he is not going to allow himself to fail. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end to which everything points, the center around which everything will come together, and Jesus is in the boat. When I let it sink in to my mind and then into my heart that Jesus is in the boat, I realize that even the power of the storm has no power to sink me. It's not about what he's going to do for me on the other side of the storm. It's not much going to be how he's going to calm this storm. He is going to take me through this storm safely to the other side. If Jesus is in, in the boat, I can enter any storm that comes at me, even a storm that I might have to face when I face up to the truth of how I have managed my life to this point. So, who is it that's really asleep in this story? To reality? Is it Jesus? Or is it the disciples? It's a scene at the end of the book that puts it out in the open. At the crucial hour of Jesus wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Over the storm that he is about to enter the battle of all ages for your heart and for mine. He pleads with his disciples to what? To stay awake, to not sleep, but to pray. What do they do? They put their heads down and fall asleep. Not a sleep of restful trust, but a sleep of total unawareness. 
of we don't care enough to stay awake, sleep. And it's only after Jesus died and rose again that these disciples really discover what it took and what it means that Jesus is in the boat. It took his dying in the ultimate storm that I deserved and it meant his rising for me to live in me by his spirit so that I can believe that he really, all of him is for all of me. All of him is in my boat. So as we close this morning, listen to some words, some some poetic, empowering words, paraphrased from God's words. Renew is going to be listening to it in a contemporary kind of way. I'd love to have us listen to it, just the words of a great old song to help us seal it into our hearts. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? Then to you, he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled, in every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home and abroad, on land or on sea, as thy days may demand, shall thy strength ever be. Fear not. I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of woe shall not overflow. For I will be with thee your troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flame, the flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall thy temple adorn like lambs, they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not. I will not desert to its foes, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So, as we close, two questions. Have you let Jesus into the boat? Is it time to allow the one who created you, the one who designed you, the one who died for you to be in the boat and to let him decide what's good for you. Number two, what is the one difference it would make in your life this week if you just lived a bit more as if Jesus was in? Let's pray. Lord God, we believe. Help our unbelief. We confess.
that we have a tendency to look for ways to make things complicated, to excuse us from just simply living as if Jesus was in the boat. I pray that you will help us to see sooner before our minds run away from us into dark and negative and emotion-driven reactions, see sooner that Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who has the beginning and the end in his hands, Jesus is in the boat. We love you and declare once again, that you are the king of our hearts. In the powerful name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen.